I want to talk to you this morning out of the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 1. It's a fascinating account of God interacting with Solomon, or rather Solomon interacting with God. I want to pose a question to you. You'll find the question in your notes also. If God came to you and God said to you, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. What would you ask for? What would you ask for? Now, what would people, what would, what would the average person typically ask for? I want to win the lottery. I want to, I want a big house. I want to have, I want to live a long life. Uh, you know, we, we have all these, these kinds of things that we would typically ask for. I mean, all we have to do is look at, our, look at our prayer life, right? What do we pray about? What do we ask for? That's a clue as to what we typically would ask for if God came to us and just said, ask me for whatever you want me to give you. Wow, that'd be cool. So look with me at uh, chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles, beginning at verse 7. We're going to read two passages. There's a companion passage in 1 Kings chapter 3. You might want to put your finger there because we're going to look at that also. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, He answered God, he said, You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you not ask for wealth, riches, or honor, nor uh, for the death of your enemies. And since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had and none after you will have. And then Solomon went to Jerusalem from the high place at Gibeon before the tent of meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 3. This gives us just a little bit more detail, same account. Verse 4, The king, meaning Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. 
Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he gave a feast for all of his court. What was it that Solomon asked for? Wisdom, a wise and discerning heart. Now, for what purpose did he ask for that? So he could govern God's people, right? So he could administer justice. What didn't Solomon ask for? Riches, honor, all the things that the people typically we would ask for. I mean, if God comes and he says, he offers a blank check. Ask for, do you suppose that if Solomon had asked for riches, God would have given it to him? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, God gives us a lot of things that we ask for, doesn't he? That, that maybe we'd been happier if we hadn't asked for it. And thankfully, he protects us from a lot of things that we've asked for he doesn't give us. I, I suspect that God would have given him whatever he asked for. I, I think it's, uh, it's just terrific, though, that he put the needs of God's people first. He asked for wisdom to rule rather than asking for riches. His father David, if you go back in First Chronicles into chapter 22, his father had instructed him in his own need for discretion and for understanding from the Lord. He's going to be king. You need God to give you wisdom. And Solomon realizes, certainly when he responds to God's offer, he realized that wisdom would be the most valuable resource he could have as a king. In fact, in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, later on, he writes this. Verse 15, he says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver, and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. Solomon, later on in his life, realized that wisdom, the thing he asked for, was the most important thing. And he writes those words. We're told in that passage in chapter 3 of verse Kings, verse 10, 
that God was pleased with how Solomon had ordered his priorities. Life does amount to priorities, doesn't it? What are my choices? What am I going to seek first? He, God was pleased with that, and, and he gave him what he had asked for. He gave him a wise and discerning heart. And on top of that, he gave him everything he didn't ask for. Wealth, honor, long life. Priorities. The New Testament speaks to us about priorities. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. The context is one where uh, Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. It, it, it's our natural tendency to worry and be anxious about things and about life. What we're going to eat, what we're gonna, where we're going to sleep, where, what, what kind of job, etc., etc., And Jesus says, don't be anxious. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. And he tells us that that we need to rightly order our priorities. He says to us in that verse, he says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these other things that you're concerned about, they'll be provided, they'll be taken care of. When we put God first, We put his kingdom and his righteousness first. Everything we really need will be given to us as well. Do we believe that? Well, some of us do. Some still have a hard time. They they know the words are there. They've heard it talked about, preached on. But it's difficult to take that step of faith for some and to really believe. Okay, God, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to suspend judgment. I am not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to seek you, your will, your purpose in my life before anything else, and I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of everything else. What a, what a terrific decision. Do you suppose that that would please God? God, would we please that we would make that choice? I think so. Now, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, that God guarantees it will be wealthy and, and famous like Solomon. I think it does mean that when we put him first, the wisdom that he gives us will enable us to have richly rewarding lives. Wherever we find ourselves, our lives will be indeed blessed. The same wisdom that God gave to Solomon, beloved, is still available to us. It's the same God. The wisdom he gave him, he will give to you and I. He comes to you and says, ask me for whatever you want me to give you. God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me a wise and discerning heart to know your will, to recognize your will, to put you first, your kingdom. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about God's gift of wisdom. If you go into the book of Proverbs, just the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, it's this continual exhortation to seek out after this gift. It's a fascinating read. If you just sit down and read the first nine chapters of Proverbs. In in chapter 4, Proverbs, Solomon says this, Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Is it important? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Wisdom, in, uh, in chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs, 
wisdom is personified and made to speak in her own cause. Let me read these verses to you. Verses 34 through 36. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. In chapter 9 of Proverbs, we read this. Proverbs, again, personified uh, as a hostess who's set out her banqueting table and invites the simple to her banquet. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. The emphasis, when you read these passages, the emphasis is on God's readiness to just simply give wisdom. Wisdom is a gift He wants to give away. Questions: are we open and receptive to it? Do we want and desire the gift of wisdom? And will we be ready to take the necessary steps to obtain it? It's a choice we have to make, isn't it? You go to the New Testament, and wisdom you find is absolutely essential. In fact, it's required of Christians. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, uh, verses 15 through 17, he says this, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Again, Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 4 of that letter. In verse 5, he says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. In chapter 1, verse 9 of that same letter to the Colossians, he prays for them. And this is a marvelous prayer. He asks God to fill them with, with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's this... Continual emphasis, Old and New Testament, on wisdom. Get wisdom. Why? Because it's supreme. It is life. James makes this promise in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all, of he, all that he does. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. It's supreme. Okay, I got it. Get it. So how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? Well, before you can get wisdom, you have to know this. There are two absolute prerequisites that must be in place. And unless these prerequisites are in place, you'll never get wisdom. Number one, we must learn to reverence God. What's another word for that? Fear. We need to fear God. We need to reverence Him. We need to hold Him in awe. 
That's the first prerequisite to gaining wisdom. The psalmist says this in Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, when you fear God, you start getting smart. You start getting wise. It's a prerequisite. Proverbs 9.10 says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's imperative to hold God in, in, in absolute awe. We know what that's like in terms of just viewing things in, in our natural world. Uh, maybe the, the first time... Have you ever, anybody stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon? Is it awe-inspiring? Oh, yeah. And now I understand they have a platform you can walk out on over the, actually over it. You can just look down. I mean, that makes me nervous just thinking about it. And you, you, you look, you look into this canyon and it's just, it's just massive. And all you can do is say, say things like, wow. Whoa, look at that. Cool. That's big. Those are all expressions of awe. That is the very essence of worship. You're taken aback. It takes your breath away. It's like if you're, 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 you're at nighttime and you're out in the desert or in the mountains on a clear night. There's no cloud cover, no glare from lights. And you look up into the sky and you see just the sky is just a mass of millions and millions of stars. And, 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 and you look up into the sky and you say, wow, there is no God. <laughs> What's the point? You, you, you just, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you, you see that which is so much greater than you are. Kind of makes you feel small and puny. It's awe. It's reverence. It's fear. Beloved, not until we humble ourselves, not until we become teachable truly, standing in awe of God's holiness and His sovereignty, not until we acknowledge our own littleness, as Solomon did, I am just a young boy. Not until we learn to distrust our own thoughts. Proverbs 3 says, don't lean on your own understanding. You're only going to fake yourself out. Don't think you're so wise. Not until we're willing to have our minds transformed, changed, renewed, turned right side up because they're upside down now, our thinking. Not until those things are pretty substantial in our life, can divine wisdom become ours? It is tragic. It is tragic that so many Christians spend all their lives in too unhumbled and prideful a frame of mind ever to gain wisdom from God at all. Proverbs 11.2 puts it this way. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Uh, that's just, it's, it's absolute. Absolutely. 
until we recognize what, what and who we really are in our desperate need of him and we humble ourselves before him, we'll never, ever, ever, ever acquire gain wisdom. You can think you're wise, but not with godly wisdom. Not, from wisdom, not with wisdom from above. The second prerequisite is that we must learn to receive God's word. Wisdom is divinely worked in those and only those who apply themselves to God's word. Psalm 119, verse 99, the psalmist writes this, I have more insight than all my teachers. How can he say that? Why do you have more insight than all your teachers? He gives us the answer. For I meditate on your statutes. The scriptures make us wise unto salvation. That's what Paul reminds Timothy of. Paul admonishes the, the, the Colossians. This is rich. In chapter, 13, uh, chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, how? Richly. Now, how is it going to dwell in us richly unless God is working it into our lives? We've got to expose ourselves to God's word on an ongoing, continual basis. Let the word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. I don't want anybody counseling me. I don't want anybody talking to me about life, about the matters of life, who doesn't know the word of God. Otherwise, it's all speculation. It's all uh, pop psychology. It's, it's, uh, it's common sense in the, the lowest way you could define that. Someone comes to you and says, let me counsel you. You say, um, <laughs> what are your credentials? I don't mean do you have a degree. I mean, do you know God's word? I don't want anybody guiding me who doesn't know the truth and the truth isn't dwelling in them richly. This is why we're continuing or encouraging each other. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Meditate on God's Word. Study God's Word. Again, in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. This is, this is a rich passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Verse 15 he says, and, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Oh, first time I read that. I didn't become a Christian until my mid-30s. I'd never read the Bible until my mid-30s. I didn't own a Bible. I didn't know what kind of Bible to buy. A Bible study I was going to, they took pity on me and saw that I didn't have a Bible, and they took a collection, unbeknownst to me, and bought me my first Bible. I was too embarrassed to ask what kind of Bible you're supposed to have. I was so stupid. Well, I still am, really, but... And I, I'm, I was thinking how my life would be different and would have been so different had I had learned the scriptures from infancy. How I'd learn if, if 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 that could just have been. What a what a tremendous privilege our kids have, mom and dad, that that we can 
from infancy teach when 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 Julie was pregnant with Michael, we used to read Proverbs to him. <laughs> Could you hear me in there? <laughs> He'd be laying in his crib at night and 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 I'd just go read to him at night. We memorized Proverbs as he was growing up. Every day we'd memorize a proverb. You can't exhaust the scriptures, but but just imagine, just from infancy to know the scriptures, Paul says, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith in Christ Jesus, verse 16, all scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Many today who profess to know Christ never learn wisdom. They never learn it because they fail to just minimally read the Bible. They don't study the Bible. They don't meditate on the Scriptures. They don't memorize God's Word. They don't hide God's Word in their heart. It's not enough to say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. We've got to grow in the knowledge of Christ, in His wisdom. And many today who profess to know him never learn wisdom. So many, so many Christians remain fools all their lives. They're clueless, just clueless. Priorities are wrong. Lives are troubled. They're confused. They don't understand. And they remain that way all their lives. Christians simply because they'll not make the time to do what has to be done to receive wisdom from God, which is a free gift. Just expose myself. Make the time. I'm forever asking people, do you read the Bible? Well, you know, I want to, I mean to, but I just don't seem to have time. Well, do you have time to read the newspaper? I was in the gym the other day, and uh, this guy was talking to me, and he said, you know, he says, uh, he says I watch you on television. I said, you come to see me live. <laughs> I said, you got to be there. And uh, he, says, he says, you know, you, you, really, you really know the Bible. I said, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I said, because I read it a lot. I've been reading it for over 30 years. I've been meditating on it for over 30 years. I've been studying it for over 30 years. It's, 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 just, it's worked in the very fiber of my being. I can hardly open my mouth without Scripture coming out or without some biblical principle of truth. My wife and my son will tell you that, right? And he says, boy, he says, I, 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 he says I, I'd like to know. I'd like to know that like you do as he's reading the newspaper. I said, how much time do you spend reading the newspaper? How much time do you read magazines? How much time do you spend reading your magazines or novels or watching TV? And what, if, what if you just put in an equal amount of time if you're reading the newspaper for a half hour, an hour in the morning? Why don't you just read the Bible for an hour in the morning? Oh, well, I don't have enough time. Yes, that's why you don't have wisdom. 
Wisdom. What kind of a gift is it? What kind of a gift is it? This is important. A lot of confusion on the part of a lot of people about wisdom. Wisdom does not necessarily give us insights and answers as to the whys of the events of life. Why did that happen? Why me? Anybody ever ask why? Anybody ever demand that God give you an answer? Why, why, why? We go to our, our counselors and say, why? And they purport to give us answers why. They don't know why. It's speculation. I'm going to prove it to you in just a few minutes. Wisdom does not necessarily give us insights nor answers about the whys of the events of life. The effect of wisdom is to enable us, note this, this is critical, the effect of wisdom is to enable us to see and to do that which is right, that which is God's will in the actual situations of everyday life. To live wisely, you have to be clear-sighted and realistic, ruthlessly so, and looking at life as it is. Wisdom does not go with comforting illusions. Wisdom does not go with fake and false sentiment. Wisdom does not go with the use of rose-colored glasses. We can be very sentimental about life, can't we? We don't look to, we don't like to look at life in its harsh realities. Because we have no answers for it. And we're constantly questioning life. Why this? Why that? And ultimately, we end up questioning God, don't we? Most of us live in a dream world. A lot of Christians live in a dream world. With their heads in the clouds, their feet off the ground. We never see the world and our lives in it as they really are. I just want to, I just want, I want someone to be nice to me. I, I just, just sugarcoat it for me. Make me feel good. No. We've got to be associated with the harsh realities of life. Harsh realities, as, as we saw in the video, people are just clueless about what happens at death. And they're wishing and hoping, well, well, I, I think we go to a better, I'd like to think we go to a better place. I don't know what happens. Well, it's kind of like being unconscious. You know, you knocked unconscious and, and it's all dark. You just don't know anything. We have a term for all that. In, a, in, a, in our modern, modern language, modern parlance, we call it denial. I don't want to think, I don't want to believe that there's such a horrible doctrine as hell. Eternal damnation, eternal punishment. Please, please help me get around that somehow. You see, there's this deep-seated, sin-bred lack of realism. And it is the reason why there is so little wisdom among us, even the soundest among us, even the most orthodox among us. 
Beloved, I'm here to tell you, it takes more than sound doctrine to cure us of our unrealism. There is one book in the Bible, one book in the Bible that is expressly, expressly designed to turn us into realists. Can you think of what book that is? Was it? Ecclesiastes. Turn, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to do a little survey. Written by Solomon. Describes himself, depending upon the version you're reading, as the preacher or the teacher. Look at verse 2. Starts off with a bang. Read this with me. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is. All right, let's do it again. No, no, you guys didn't do it with me. Come on. I'm working hard up here, guys. Ready? Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now you read that. He did, that's just the start of the book. Question. Is this the confession of some old, embittered, cynic that finds nothing but disillusionment at the end of his life? Sounds like it, huh? Some people read it that way. Or is the teacher trying to bring home the impossibility of finding happiness apart from God? What do you think? Which would you choose? How many vote for number one? How many vote for number two? Well, you're all wrong. (laughs) Neither is really the answer. However, the, the second conclusion comes closer to the point. The author, Solomon here, speaks as a a mature teacher. Mature in the sense that he's seen it all, he's had it all, he's done it all. Nothing, nothing in life has escaped him. And he's teaching a young disciple and giving him the fruit of his long life and experience and his reflections. What What a privilege to sit at the feet of somebody who's who's seen it all, who's done it all, who's not cynical, who's not beat up by it, but who is a realist about life. Someone to instruct you, someone to teach you what to expect. What a marvelous gift, huh? Someone to impart wisdom to you. He wants to lead us into into true wisdom, And keep us from falling into the mistake of thinking that wisdom, when we gain it, would tell us the reasons for God's doings in the ordinary course of life. Well, that's why God did that. That's why God did that. We make grand pronouncements about these things, purporting to be wise and to have special insight and knowledge You see, what he wants us to see in the book of Ecclesiastes is that the basis of wisdom is a frank acknowledgement that this world's course, the way the world goes, 
is enigmatic, baffling, unexplainable. Wait a minute. I thought, no, no, this is his purpose. He wants us to see that much of what happens is quite inexplicable to us. And that most occurrences under the sun bear no outward sign at all of a rational, moral God ordering them at all. <laughs> That's eye-opening, huh? How many believe in God? How many believe that God is sovereign? Orders every detail, every detail of life. Well, not as many hands went up at that one. Now, you, when you look at life, does it look like God's in charge? No, it does not. Far from it. This is what people say. People say, well, if, if there's a God, then why boom, 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 and they give us all these things, right? We go, say, I don't know. And when you look at life, see, here's, this, is, this, is, this is what he's trying to get us to see is, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. He ordains everything according to the mystery of his perfect, marvelous will, and yet it doesn't even look like it. As we judge from our own perspective, don't we? Our own limited perspective. The teacher says, look. He just says, look. Look at the sort of world we live in. Just look. Open your eyes. Take off your rose-colored glasses. Rub your eyes. Look at it long and hard. What do you see? Well, let's take a look at, 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 at what we see. Turn to chapter 1. Look with me at verses 4 through 10. He starts off and he says, First, you see the very background of life, every detail of life, set by seemingly aimless recurring cycles in nature. He's told us everything is meaningless. And in verse 4, he says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, never returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was, it was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are uh, yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. It's just this continual cycle. It just kind of, kind of aimless. It just goes and goes and goes and everything in its context doesn't seem to make sense. In chapter three, the first eight verses of chapter three, he points out the fact that life is Life shape is fixed by time and circumstances over which you and I have absolutely no control. No control. He says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun, a time to be born, a time to die. Did anybody choose a time to be born? 
No. And guess what? You don't choose the time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, a time to refrain, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Turn over to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happens to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. You can't always tell. You don't always know. There's no certainty to life. You see death coming to everyone sooner or later. But it often comes haphazardly. And it comes bears no relation to good or evil desert. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he's made crooked? Whoa. This is the meaningless of life. I've seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Look at chapter 8, verse 8. No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. He says in chapter 3, verse 19, that men die just like animals, indiscriminately. In chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 9, verse 2, he says, in effect, good men die just like the bad men, and wise men die just like fools. No difference. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, you see evil running rampant. Just look at the world. What do you see? You see that this is reality. In chapter 8, verse 14, he says, the wicked succeed, the righteous don't. Seeing all this, you realize that God's ordering of events is absolutely inscrutable. You can't figure it out. Much as you want to make sense of it, you cannot. Why did this happen? Why this tragedy? Look at chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 again. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, he's happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Chapter 8, verse 17. Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Chapter 11, verse 5. 
as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. The harder you and I try to understand God's purpose in the ordinary providential course of events, the more obsessed and oppressed we grow with the apparent aimlessness of everything. In other words, you try to figure it out. You try to set a pattern, categories. Someone says, put God in a box. I got you. I got you all figured out. The minute you got God in your box, guess what? He exits the box and kicks it over. He says, ha! (laughs) And the more that reality comes home to us, we see, we're frustrated by the apparent aimlessness of life, the more we are tempted to conclude that life really is as pointless as it looks. That's why people give up. That's why they quit. That's why they just give up. They have no hope. They have no confidence. They look at life. They see it as it is. It's driven them into the ground. But you see, once you conclude that there really is no rhyme or reason to things, I mean, when you come to that conclusion, you ask yourself, what profit is there? Why, why am I doing this? What, what value? What, what purpose? What, what, why, why am I pursuing anything at all? It's pointless. Again, go back to go back to chapter one, verse three. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Chapter two, verse eleven. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Verse 22, what does a man gain for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? Chapter 3, verse 9, what does the worker gain from his toil? Wow. You see, if life is senseless, as it appears to be, then it is valueless. And in that case, what use is it working to create anything? What use is it to try to build a business? What use is it to make money or even to seek wisdom if it's all really aimless, senseless? For none of this does us any good. None of it. Again, go back to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man is like the fool, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Imagine that. You see, the harder you strive, he tells us over in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, the harder you strive and you achieve, 
uh, it's only what, what it's going to amount to is that you're only going to be the envy of your neighbor now. He's just going to envy you. It doesn't really make any difference. And then he says in, in, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, this is, this, is, this is the ultimate insult. You can't take any of it with you. And what you leave behind is going to be mismanaged by somebody who you leave it to. Look at this. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I poured my efforts and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving for which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Whoa. Must not then a man's work be judged meaningless and a chasing after the wind? Must not it be judged in activity that we cannot justify as being either significant in itself or worthwhile to us at all? It is to that pessimistic conclusion. And there's no other conclusion you could reach. That pessimistic conclusion, says the teacher, that optimistic expectations from finding the divine purpose of everything will lead you. In other words, if you think that you're going to find the purpose, the reason for everything, you, you have that optimism, you're going to wind up sorely, sorely disappointed. Again, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. What has it got me all? See, the teacher is right. The world we live in is, in fact, a sort of a place that he's described. We try to find patterns and categories and, and, and make sense out of things. But at the, in, in the final analysis, when you look at life realistically, you see that the God who rules it hides himself. Rarely does God make himself known. Rarely does this world look as if this good, beneficent, providential being is really running it. It's chaos every place we look. It's just chaos every place we look. Oh, I, yeah, but there's good over there, there's good over there. Yeah, but you can't depend on it. The only thing you can depend on is what? Murphy's Law. Whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. We start out optimistically. We say, all right, and boom. Boom, 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 <laughs> happens. God, where are you? And just silence comes, doesn't it? Maddening, 
maddening, deafening silence, and nothing changes, apparently. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So Solomon says, in effect, be realistic. Be realistic. Face these facts. See life like it is. Because you'll never gain wisdom until you do so. Don't live your life, your Christian experience, with rose-colored glasses. Don't say, well, it's all going to be okay. Many of us are caught up in the conception, or rather the misconception, I think, of what wisdom is. And we think that we, we, we have a grasp on the whys and the wherefores of God's doings. We feel sure that God has enabled us to understand all of his ways with us. You see, I'm studying the Bible, so I know how God works. That's not why you study the Bible, to try to figure out what God's doing or how he works. We find ourselves just taking it for granted that we will be able to see at any given moment, at any given moment, the reason for anything that may happen to us in the future. <gasps> I know why that happened. Or better yet, we tell people, I know why that's happened to you. Anybody read Job? And Job's friends made these grand pronouncements to Job why these things happened to him? By the way, do you know that at the end of the book of Job, God never tells Job why? <laughs> never tells him why. Job just said, I'm going to shut my mouth. He called God into question, didn't he? And God says, <clears throat> excuse me? You see, we think we, we think we've got it all figured out. And then something painful, something tragic, something quite inexplicable comes along and then it blows our categories. It blows our cheerful illusion of being in God's secret counsels. We didn't have it figured out. God's functioning outside the box I made for him. Either that or he's not in control. Either that or he's asleep at the switch. He's taking a nap. God, have you taken note of this? We're, we're angry. Why? Because our pride is wounded. We feel that God has slighted us somehow. And unless, beloved, at that very moment, unless we repent and humble ourselves very thoroughly from our former presumptions, our whole spiritual life after that will be blighted, devastated. You will have no hope whatsoever. Once God has done this thing in your life to you, fits outside your categories, you thought you all had him all figured out. The truth is, 
that God in his wisdom, this is where you just have to bow. God in his wisdom to make us humble and to keep us humble. Is that an ongoing job? Someone said, look how humble I am. To keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden from us. He's hidden from us everything that we should like to know about his purposes, which he's working out in our life. You can't do it. You can't know these purposes. Not at all. So then what's wisdom? Well, the teacher has helped us up to this point to see what wisdom is not. And then he gives us guidance as to what it is. Turn with me to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, and look with me at verse 13. Here's the final conclusion. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Read this out loud with me, church. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, what's wisdom? Trust Him. Obey Him. Fear Him. Worship Him. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. Never say more than you mean and that you'll stand to when you pray to him. Look at chapter 5, by the way, verses 1 through 7. We have this admonition. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You're on earth, so let the words be few. In other words, don't make some grand pronouncement. He's up there. He sees it all, knows it all, and you're just puny and little pusillanimous person. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Oh, I didn't really mean that. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. What should we do? Stand in awe of God. If you go over to chapter 3 and verse, uh, verse 12, he says, Be happy and do good while you live. Make a decision. Be happy. Do good. Remember that God will someday take account of your life. Chapter 11, verse 9. This is, this is worth looking at. Be happy, young man, while you're still young. Let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know 
that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Live life in the present. Enjoy it thoroughly. Seek His grace to work hard at whatever He calls you to do and enjoy your work as you do it. Quit complaining. Quit whining. Quit crabbing. Just whatever God's given you to do, do it. Do it with joy. Do it with gladness in your heart. Thankfulness. Leave all the issues of your job to God. Leave your success into God's hands. He's going to judge you. You be faithful. Let him measure the worth of your job. Well, this is beneath me. No, it's not. Your part is to use all the good sense and enterprise at your command and exploiting all the opportunities that lie before you. What's God opened you for? Go for it. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. If it's clearly not sin, if it's not illegal, if it's not immoral, go for it. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you'll find it again. In other words, take a chance. Come on. Quit playing it safe. Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. In other words, you have lots of little baskets going on. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether the tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, it'll lie there. Whoever watches, the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or the, how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning and at evening. Let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that or whether both will do equally well. In other words, every opportunity God gives you, pursue it. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way of wisdom. And wisdom is just one facet of the life of faith. And what underlies it, what sustains it? This conviction that the inscrutable God of providence is the wise and gracious God of creation and redemption. He's the same. You can be sure, beloved, that the God who made this marvelously complex world order, this God who governs it, nothing escapes Him. He's ordained life to function in a way that He's ordained it. It may not make sense to you and me. This same God who designed and created and keeps this thing all going and who has accomplished a great salvation for you and I from sin and death and hell and Satan. This God knows what He's doing. And He does everything well. Say that with me. He does everything well. Even, even if for the moment he hides his hand, you can't discern. You can't, it just seems contradictory to what you know of him. You can trust him. 
You can trust Him. You can rejoice in Him even when you cannot discern His path. God, I know you're there. How many times do we pray, God, help, be with me, where did you go? I never left you. I'm here. Don't panic. How marvelous when we pray from faith, I trust you. I don't understand these circumstances, but I know you and I know you understand them. I trust you. I know you have a purpose for this. I trust you. My part is to obey you. My part is to fear you. My part is to praise you and thank you no matter what in the face of these painful, difficult, seemingly paradoxical circumstances. Such, then, is the wisdom which God makes us wise. Wisdom. Wisdom consists in choosing the best means to the best end. God's work of wisdom is a means to His chosen end of restoring and perfecting us. You may not figure, how is this going to get me from here to there? God, how is this going to, this crazy situation going to get me to you? I trust you. I know you know what you're doing. If I had a choice, I would not do it this way. (laughs) Wisdom. Wisdom is not a sharing of his knowledge with us in terms of the whys and wherefores. Wisdom is a disposition. It's a disposition to confess that he is wise. It's a disposition to be devoted to him. It's a disposition to live for him in the light of his word, no matter what, through thick and thin. That's wisdom. And the effect of his gift of wisdom in our lives is to make us more humble. It's to make us more joyful, more godly, more quick-sighted as to his will and more resolute in the doing of his will and less troubled than we were at the dark and painful things of which our life in this fallen world is full. Yeah, life's hard. It's painful. It's difficult. It's confusing. But the effect of growing in his wisdom, this world does not beat me up as much as it used to. The kind of wisdom that God waits to give those who ask him, it's a wisdom that will bind us to him. A wisdom that will find expression in a life of faith, and a life of faithfulness. I trust you, God. I trust you. Wisdom is supreme, Solomon says. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it 
is your life. Amen. Lord, thank you that you give wisdom and you give it abundantly. You give it freely. But Lord, keep us mindful that for us to receive that wisdom, two very, very important things have to happen. One, we have to live in a reverential, fearful attitude towards you, and we must be willing to receive your word, not kick against it, not doubt it. Though we may have questions, things we don't understand, Lord, not to question you or your will. As we come to your table now, Lord, as we've all been thinking together and focusing on wisdom and being realists about life, we come to your table and, Lord, we do ask for wisdom. We trust that you'll give it to us. Wisdom about how we should live. Wisdom about trusting you. Wisdom, Lord, about not failing and giving up and quitting. Thank you, Lord. We love you this morning. Amen, church?